0: Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. Ahmed Ranjan, thank you very much for coming on our podcast today. Uh, You have an impressive background that I look forward to discussing with you. But before we begin, could you please introduce yourself to your audience? Who are you? What are you doing? Uh, how, How should we identify you?
1: Thanks, David, for having me on this podcast look forward to interacting with your community. So a quick background about uh, you know myself. Uh, so I am a technology entrepreneur. And uh, in 2006, I you know happened to co-found a company called SlideShare, which was in the online professional content space. And 2006, as you might uh, imagine, was a very different era compared to where we are in 2023. It was a very early stage of the social web. This was a time when YouTube had just been creator and, you know, Flickr and MySpace were still around and they were the most popular network. So Slideshare happened uh, during that era, that phase. And I was one of the three co-founders. Two of my other co-founders were based in the Bay Area. I was based out of New Delhi. And Slideshare, uh, you know, grew fast, became very popular, became the, the predominant uh, professional content sharing platform on the internet. 2012, we were acquired by LinkedIn. Uh, I spent a couple of years at LinkedIn SlideShare post uh, the acquisition. In 2014, I exited, 2000, early, early 2015, actually. And uh, in in a bit of a bowl from the blue, uh, it wasn't necessarily something I had planned, but I ended up working for the government of India. Uh, completely, you know, different space, a diametrically opposite, but, you know, was, uh, kind of a continuum as far as the professional spectrum goes. And uh, more specifically with the government, uh, what happened was the uh, Indian government had, you know, sometime around 2008 or nine, they had put together the digital identity program called Aadhaar. And that had been in the works for about five or six years. And by 2015, when I was kind of, you know, contemplating what to do next, uh, the government dis- had by then decided that, you know, they wanted to build other um, digital platforms that used Aadha's API capabilities. And they were looking for you know, people from that with a technology background, people who had built large, scalable platforms, and who came with an entrepreneurial mindset. And it was during that phase that uh, you know, I was working very sh- closely with Sharad and his organization called iSpirit. We are all, as I said, extended volunteers at iSpirit. iSpirit is a completely voluntary body. And uh, through that association, I ended up, uh, you know, I landed up in the government. I took up a formal position as an architect at the Ministry of um, uh, Electronics and IT, which is the the federal uh, nodal agency or the ministry or the department that deals with everything to do with uh, information technology in India. And uh, they were uh, building a series of platforms, and the platform that I extensively worked on is is something called DigiLocker. So DigiLocker is, uh, you know, think of it as a federated document network. You know, there's various uh, documents and IDs and, uh, you know, data records that any government issues to its citizens over their lifetime. So similar, similarly in India, you know, an Indian citizen would have been issued uh, a whole host of, you know, documents, records, certificates, IDs, so, uh, and the entire uh, you know, exchange economy or the ecosystem around that happens in the physical world. People are taking you know paper copies and sharing them. And the idea was that, can you create a digital equivalent of that? Can you digitize the, the document uh, and the data records and then build a complete uh, you know, transaction ecosystem whereby if you are kind of stopped by a cop on the road and he's asking for your driving license, you actually don't give him a paper. Uh, DL, you actually pull out a digital record from your mobile phone, or if you're, let's say, catching a flight or a train, uh, then you can actually show a digital version of your, uh, you know, ID. So this this started off in 2015. As you might imagine, for a country like India with 1.4 billion people, you know, it is easier said than done. This is a mammoth, gigantic project, and um, it took, uh, I would say, almost two to three years for us to even get started, to put together the basic concept, the architecture, the APIs. We built together, we put together uh, an online application. And by by about 2018 or 19 is when this platform actually started taking off. So in 2000, we are in 2023, so it's been about uh, six or seven years. And the platform is, uh, you know, kind of still, it is used by about more than 200 million people. So that's a big number in itself. But It's, uh, you know, at an India scale, that's still less than 25% of the country's population. So a long way to go there.
0: Impressive, thank you for sharing that with me. It's a lot to unpack there. I'd like to go back to talk about the evolution of SlideShare, but before I do, I have to ask you, you mentioned, almost with a chuckle, going from a startup environment into the government. How would you categorize India's government in startup terms was it an easy transition is, is is the indian government fairly agile and able to absorb some of this uh thought leadership that you have in the tech
1: space yeah so governments are uh, honestly different creatures they're just you know designed and built differently than what you have in either in the private sector or in the more extreme version of the private sector the startup space um but at the same time the government is kind of you know i would say they are honest and uh, they kind of you know reflect inwards and kind of uh, look at their own capabilities and they've been able to identify where the gaps are now the way governments are set up it may not be easy for them to f- fill those gaps you know immediately or just have overnight solutions for that so i think what has happened in india and something which is quite remarkable and i feel very thankful for having uh, had the opportunity to work with the government is that the government of the day, about uh, around 2008, 2009, kind of figured out that there are these gaps. And, you know, there's, there's various uh, initiatives, there are various things that the government wants to do. And uh, what better way to kind of, uh, you know, fill those gaps, but to kind of, you know, somehow engineer or orchestrate a situation wherein people from the private sector, people from the startup world, People who are working in, uh, you know, big IT services companies, they somehow come into the government, become a part of it in various, you know, engagement modes. And then they kind of, you know, think of it as a public-private partnership. It's just the government and its own infrastructure and bureaucracy, and there's people from the outside who are coming in. And they kind of come together, and uh, it's, a, it's a loosely enmeshed system. It's not a monolithic-tight system. But uh, because this is for the cause of the because this is for the national cause, it is for the country at large. I think everybody puts in their best effort, and this has this this entire I would say configuration has had uh, tremendous uh, success in India. Uh, the governments have really kind of you know uh, created a path or orchestrated a complete mechanism whereby people from the private side are coming and working in various capacities with the government and they are contributing. And so I would say that in that sense, uh, I always tell, you know, anybody I talk to is that I I ended up working in the government, but think of it like a startup within the government. Uh, You know, in many ways, it is like a government startup, if I were to kind of, you know, quote unquote, uh, take it with a pinch of salt Uh, not exactly the startup in the Silicon Valley sense, but uh, imagine what a startup inside a government would look like. And that's what I ended up kind of, you know, working on. And uh, I mean, I would say it's very credible that uh, governments can and have responded in this manner. And they've kind of, you know, orchestrated a situation whereby the private side and the public side come together to build these large digital platforms.
0: That's great to hear. I heard from uh, Sharad in a previous interview that the Indian government can take a while, like perhaps any government, uh, it can take a while to uh, come to consensus, but that once it does, it's usually fair and reliable. So that was heartening to hear. But with the rapid pace of technological progress, it seems like you need to be more agile, and that's interesting to hear that now they have kind of a, a startup approach within the government. I think that that's probably the, the best next step.
1: So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think also also what has uh, happened is that because India has such a large footprint on the IT side, so there is a lot of innate capability. There are people uh, definitely on the IT services side where you know these big companies are working for global partners. Also, I would say on the product side, it's kind of, you know, happening now. And, uh, and and there is obviously the desire in every citizen to see the best for their country. So in a way, this was bound to happen, is that when you have such a large native uh, uh, indigenous domestic industry, which is kind of building software for the world, at some point in time, you know, that industry is going to reflect inwards and say, what can we do for the country? And uh, you know, the, the government of the day kind of you know, put together this, uh, this mechanism. Uh, so I think India is fortunate in that sense, is that we, we do have uh, you know, a very large uh, pool of software engineers, probably the second largest after the US. And that has actually in, you know, come together with the government to make this happen. Great. So going back
0: to SlideShare, how would you describe the evolution? From starting it with two other co-founders to become, being acquired by
1: LinkedIn, how much did it grow in that time? So it grew massively. I mean, you know, it started as a small uh, website that, uh, and you know, let me kind of quickly share with you the uh, the context in which Slideshare was created or born, and I think that'll add some uh, you know uh, meaning to this uh, uh, to this uh, to this answer that in 2006 we were actually uh, attending a conference here in new delhi as uh, as attendees it was uh, uh, it was organized uh, in uh, in one of the technology events here and what happened was that uh, we were also actually part of the organizing team and we realized that at the end of the event uh, there was no way no effective way of sharing of uh, you know presentations files of the speakers that they had uh, you know uh, the sessions that had happened through the day and because we were the organizers, so we found people coming to us and saying hey can you help us share and we had these speakers come to us and say can you help you know my presentation notes or presentations get distributed amongst the audience and conversely on the audience side there were people coming and telling us can you give me that guy's speaker that speaker he was very good so we found ourselves kind of buffeted between those two group of people And uh, there was no means of sharing presentation files at that time, in 2006, actually. And at the same time, we saw that uh, there was no problem with sharing of video files or sharing of, you know, uh, pictures or images that people were clicking with their mobile phones because Flickr was quite popular. YouTube had been born about eight or nine months back. And so people were catching on to that concept. So so that was a trigger in our mind is that and it seems like uh, you know there is no effective or easy way to share presentations documents on the internet today and in many ways the way we kind of describe that problem is that uh, this event ended today but these files these presentation these ppt files that you know kind of capture a lot of the value of what this event delivered a lot of the archival value of what was talked about today kind of, you know, is captured in these in these files and they are going to die on people's hard drives and people's desktop folders today because there is no effective way to free them on the internet. And the idea was that, okay, just the and we looked at, you know, as I said, YouTube and Flickr and we said, wow, that's this is so great. These videos and these pictures seem to kind of have a social life on the internet. So we kind of thought in those lines. We said, "Is there a mechanism, or is there a way to kind of, you know, create a platform or think of a platform whereby these these uh, these documents, these files, are kind of, you know, let loose on the internet, and they start their life on the on the internet today. They don't go to die in people's hard drives and their desktops." So that was the trigger, and uh, it was it started from a zero base. We looked around, we found there was no other means of. Uh, you know, achieving that. So we kind of said, okay, let us just build a prototype. ourselves. we put together a team, we built a prototype, we launched it, and it immediately took off. And we realized that you know we had really hit a nerve here because this was a latent need, this was an unexpressed need. Nobody was telling us that you know you go and build this thing, but just uh, the fact that uh, uh, the way it kind of you know uh, took off was clear indication that uh, you know there is more to this. So it kind of started growing very fast. And uh, by the time, uh, you know, we got acquired in 2006, it was about seven or eight years. So, Sideshare had almost 150 million users at that time. And it was uh, uh, the predominant or the most popular content sharing platform on the internet. And uh, so, uh, and we had a lot of uh, technology partnerships with other, other big tech companies. Uh, including LinkedIn, and that it was one of those partnerships that kind of you know finally led us to getting acquired by LinkedIn.
0: That's great. When you say 150 million users, is that globally? Was the distribution of that was it predominantly
1: within India? I'm curious how popular was this around the globe. Well, this was totally a global platform. Very, I mean, you know, for most uh, global uh, social media platforms, I mean, the the broad breakup that you would see. Is that about twenty to twenty-five percent would be, you know, North American, uh, you know, usage. So this is the uh, the U.S. and Canada and those countries. Uh, around uh, twenty to twenty-five percent would be, you know, from Europe. Uh, there'll be another, like maybe thirty percent from South America, Africa, and the rest of it from Asia. So SlideShare kind of mirrored this trend, and as I said, you know, this trend would largely be, you know, uh, replicated across most global social platforms proper
0: distribution, well done. Starting with a small team and then scaling to a massive team, how, how was that? Was that a smooth transition? Were there some growing pains on the way? And if so, how did you identify and address them?
1: So startup journeys are never smooth. I mean, they're never a straight line. They always kind of you know go, go like this. And uh, I always tell you know, friends that startups are embodiments of you know, living chaos. It's like, uh, um, it's, um, it's never a smooth journey. It's never a straight line. And uh, But the good thing is that, uh, you know, you learn along that journey. So the key thing to, uh, to understand is that uh, people who thrive at startups are probably people who are good at teaching themselves. They're good at self-learning. They're good at learning quickly. So, quick learning and self-learning are two traits that, in my opinion, you know, really uh, you know, come to your rescue. They would really help you if you are kind of doing a startup or even working at a startup. Because a lot of the situations that you are going to face, whether it is you know the the idea, the product, the the execution of that product and idea, then you know, coming onto the business side, how do you put together a sales team? How do you put together a marketing team? How do you take it to the market? how do you sell it to customers? And then the whole, you know, uh, the whole um, uh, thing about running a company because company is made of human beings. It's about people. And a lot of, uh, you know, people who are coming with a technology background, people who are software engineers, they might be good at writing code. They're not necessarily good at managing human relationships. That's not something that they were kind of, you know, uh, trained for. So I would say that that often turns out to be, uh, you know, quite tricky. That's an area where you see a lot of, uh, you know, churn. You'll see a bunch of chaos. Startup teams, uh, you know, grow fast. There's a fair bit of, you know, ups and downs. And uh, but uh, essentially, you know, you have to teach yourself. Uh, you uh, you do uh, have one advantage in the sense that uh, you know social media is. Is is kind of an ecosystem where people talk about their experiences. So if you've you know if you've built a company, if you've scaled an organization, if you taken it to let's say an IPO, and you go and search on Google, you'll find so many people who have shared their stories in a completely uh, non-commercial, uh, original, authentic way. So you when you read about that, that kind of you know tells you, it gives you pointers, it gives you cues. So there's a lot of uh, you know, learning that happens just by reading how others have, you know, undertaken that journey before you. So that is, in my opinion, a big tool and something that comes to your rescue time and again, is that just talking to others, reading about others' experience, reaching out. And the startup ecosystem is fairly well-networked, is that, uh, and especially if you're, you know, working on open source, and you, you can argue that, you know, Slideshare was an open source uh, Version of content. We are trying to create an open source version of a content community. So the whole uh, idea of open source is based on the notion of paying it forward. Is that you know you stand on the shoulders of what others have done. You build something, and then once you get to a certain level of success, you can't unfortunately pay the people who you have kind of you know uh, you know uh, whose 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 work you have leveraged on. But the way to kind of, you know, pay back uh, to pay, uh, you know, the way to this system, this ecosystem grows is that you pay it forward. You kind of, you know, help out others. You kind of, you know, let others uh, who are in a similar situation, you kind of, you know, uh, help them out in whatever way they can. So that is something which is really, uh, you know, very powerful about the startup ecosystem. An
0: analogy that comes to mind hearing you talk about that is... Working in a startup is like swimming in the ocean looking for resources whereas working for a company is like being on a boat. Yeah. How do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, it is accurate. It is accurate in that sense, uh, you know, in large organizations they are designed in a different way. If, you know, there's a certain amount of work that is required by definition, you know, the organization would you know, maybe hire 2x or 3x the resources that are required because they are planning for things like redundancy, continuity, succession planning. Now, those words don't exist in the lexicon of a startup in the initial years at least. And uh, you, you'll have so many stories about startup uh, startups where, you know, they, they'll never have thought of this for the first 10 years or first eight years of their organization's journey. It's only they, when they reach that stage and they have to scale and they have to grow that's when they realize, oh, yeah, you know what, it's not, I mean, while there are differences between startups and, you know, large companies, but in a sense, a startup, once it grows, does mirror many of the dynamics and the challenges that you see in large organizations as well. So there is that transition as well. And uh, it's said that, you know, one of the sayings I remember is that, you know, what made you successful in the past isn't what will make you success succeed in the future, is that the solutions of yesterday are really you know you have to while well, you leverage them you learn and you kind of grow fast but they are not going to help you tomorrow you you got to kind of you know get onto a different trajectory tomorrow so which means that it kind of explains this constant churn and this chaos and you know this chaos kind of gets reflected even in the uh, you know the the kind of teams uh, startups have in the team composition team numbers uh, you know, it's very common to hear of a startup team and say, you know what? I mean, more than half of my team wasn't there, uh, you know, 15 months ago. So so the company is getting constantly, you know, reborn and rejuvenated. And the challenge for the founding and the management team is that how do you keep the uh, the ship uh, sailing through all this uh, tumultuous, uh, uh, you know, journeys? Looking back,
0: I'm sure you had a thousand. Lessons that you learned from building your startup—are there any that stick out in your mind that you still remember, like a lesson learned in building up Slideshare?
1: Oh, I think lots of lessons, lots of lessons. I think, uh, and uh, you know, we did many things right, uh, but we did many things wrong as well. I mean, to be honest, looking back in hindsight, uh, there are there are many situations where you kind of. Uh, reflect back and say, oh, uh, we wish we had the benefit of hindsight and we would have done this uh, in in such a different way. I would say that, uh, you know, uh, a few quick lessons that come to my mind, uh, especially from the, the startup ecosystem is that, uh, you know, when you're building a, a business, uh, especially, and, and, you know, I would kind of confine myself that a lot of my expertise is best applied to software internet-based ideas, it may not necessarily kind of, you know, port over or carry over to physical uh, kind of businesses. So I'm kind of, you know, I uh, would like to kind of narrowly focus on that space, is that uh, you really need to kind of focus on product and user experience, right? If, uh, you know, Steve Jobs is is an iconic figure who's, you know, who taught, so many, uh, you know, of these life lessons to to Silicon Valley, and one of the things that you really learn from him is the focus on the customer, that uh, you have to focus on the customer and the fact that often the customer doesn't know what he or she wants. It's not as if just by inquiring the customer or by asking them questions, which is what you would, you know, hear about in traditional market research. So a lot of the answers, you know, you may not get by directly asking people. You have to kind of have the pulse of the market. You have to read what the, you know, the users are wanting or they are needing needing in a latent way, and then, you know, figure out what the solution to that would be. So focus on, I would say, the product for focus of user or on user experience is paramount on the internet. Um, I would say uh, the importance of having uh, on the on the side of building a company the importance of having a strong founding team a strong management team is something that you know you realize uh, is a very important uh, factor you need you know multiple uh, uh, team members or multiple founders preferably each of whom have uh, maybe, Complementary skill sets. If somebody is good at, let's say, technology, the other person could be a business-oriented person. The third person could be a people-oriented person who's good at managing, uh, uh, you know, a a company's internal matters. So you need a multifaceted team, and without uh, that, a team of that sort, it's very hard to build, you know, a sustainable organization that will grow over a long period of time. And and uh and finally i would say that uh the this constant chaos and this constant churn and this constant uh you know non linearity that you see in the startup journey uh being able to master that being able to manage that because human beings by definition are designed to kind of uh to to kind of you know gravitate towards certainty we want a, we want a grand design we want to see that design, and you want to kind of you know move towards it, or kind of you know uh, make our way towards it in a in a predefined way. Uh, but unfortunately, the startup journey is just uh, you know just built up in a different way. So managing that transition, manage understanding those those changes, and being able to manage that at your own interpersonal level, managing it in the team around you, that is that is of paramount importance.
0: What happened when LinkedIn acquired? Slide share. Did the culture change? Did the, the, the,
1: uh, did the team change? Did the processes change? Could you talk about that transition? Yeah, they, they did change. And to be honest, you know, life inside a large organization, a public company uh, is never the same as what it would be inside a, you know, a hundred member startup. So uh, I think uh, there were uh, many changes, I think, uh, with respect to how the team was structured, because you know, once you are acquired, and this is very common of Silicon Valley, uh, you don't completely control the you know uh, what's going to happen to the product or the uh, or, or or the service because it's now part of a larger game plan, and it has to now fit into that game plan, and you know you have to kind of you know uh, learn to coexist within within that imperative. So uh, there were lots of changes, as is the case with every acquisition story. Changes in the teams, changes in how the teams are run, managed. The culture definitely undergoes a change. At the same time, it uh, you know it must be said that uh, there is pressure on Silicon Valley big tech companies also to, uh, you know, kind of have a little bit of a startup culture because uh, the the equation on their side is that as companies grow bigger and they become larger, it's not easy for them to keep on innovating. So they look at Startups as one of the sources of this innovation, so there is that that I would say that pressure on them as well, and they try to kind of you know, um, once they acquire companies and they try to kind of you know draw some kind of a balance uh, between what the the earlier culture and the existing culture in the larger company is. So, uh, but yeah, you know it's a, it's a gradual process over a period of time it peters out, and I would say Startshare was no different in that sense. Uh, uh, you know, it, it took a few years, and then it was kind of you know part of LinkedIn.
0: Did you have an internal celebration once you got acquired by LinkedIn? That's quite some validation.
1: It's kind of a bittersweet moment, honestly. Uh, and uh, in our case, honestly, we had never planned for the exit. It was just, a, I would say, a configuration of circumstances that led to it, which is very different uh, in. In many other startup stories, you'll you'll often hear when you talk to startup founders that they always had the exit on their radars and they either, you know, kind of orchestrated it or they, you know, were trying to gravitate towards it, uh, you know, in some way or the other. The Slice's story was very different. Honestly, we had absolutely no plans of selling. It just so happened that, uh, you know, LinkedIn was a big company and they came along and they said that, you know, we think uh, we could coexist together. And, uh, you know, uh, it was true that uh, the SlideShare community was kind of a subset of the LinkedIn community. So there was synergy at a a community level. That's also the fact that uh, one of the drivers for us was uh, the the realization that, uh, so we were a small company with offices in the Bay Area and in Delhi, and we were having a little bit of a hard time, you know, managing the show across two different continents, two different time zones, two different, you know, organization culture. So the thinking was that if you become a part of a larger uh, ship, uh, you know, they'll actually help you uh, run the company. So that to us was one of the big motivations why we agreed to uh, the acquisition. But as I said, you know, acquisitions are always bittersweet. There's some things that you really like. There's some things you kind of uh, uh, feel it was set up in a different way, but that's just the reality of it.
0: Did that transition help you at all with moving into the government?
1: I would say that, uh, in general, uh, you know, not having very strong expectancies, being flexible, being agile, you know, being oriented towards uh, quick learning and self-learning. Those are some of the traits that I, uh, you know, uh, that I really kind of uh, imbibed and learned. Uh, during the startup phase. And those generic traits, I would say, did come in helpful uh, when I joined the government. And uh, because, uh, you know, I I realized that uh, the government is obviously a very different uh, beast compared to, you know, uh, technology startups, especially Silicon Valley type technology startups. But I think, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I don't, uh, my, my my punt was my thinking was when this offer from the government uh, came uh, came the first time, uh, a, it was the opportunity to serve the national cause, which was something much bigger than what you would do in a in a startup. And b I, I kind of you know broken down into thinking about the end user, who's the end user in case of a technology product and who's the end user in case of something that the government is building? Uh, so the government is focused on citizens, whereas, you know, products uh, in the in the technology world think of users or customers. But some of the key drivers for why humans want to, you know, kind of uh, adopt a particular piece of a product or a technology, I, I felt weren't very different between, between a startup or a government. So I look for some of those similarities that how is it that while I become a part of the government, how can I be flexible? How can I keep come in with a lower ex- expectancy but be very action oriented be very agile governments are known to be bureaucratic right uh, and that's true for you know the world over it's not just the indian government governments are built by design as silos you know one part of the government doesn't no one doesn't talk to the other part so how is it that uh, you know some of the learnings from the startup uh, journey can uh, actually help bridge Uh, you know, some of those requirements. I I think I was able to manage that transition because I kept myself, you know, flexible and agile and willing to learn and roll up my sleeves and, you know, not get caught up in in any preconceived notions.
0: Okay. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Going back to that initial merger acquisition with LinkedIn, you played an integral role in that. Could you describe? how you approach that? Like what
1: what exactly did you do? So I used to, so we had three founders at Slideshare, as I mentioned previously, and you know, my role was twofold. I mean, uh, A, I used to run the India office. Anything and everything that happened in India was my domain and I used to be responsible for it. Uh, but more importantly, on the product side, a lot of the product management function and, and it kind of, you know, starts uh, in startups uh, with a small team, but as the product grows, it kind of grows in scale and complexity. Uh, so, uh, so I was kind of heading uh, product at a broader level. And uh, which means that, you know, uh, having a product roadmap, figuring out what do you got to build tomorrow, what do you got to build in three months, what do you got to build in 12 months, and so on and so forth. And then, you know, Having teams which are capable, which are trained, which kind of, you know, have the, uh, the wherewithal to actually deliver on that product roadmap. So a lot of that, you know, that part uh, or that responsibility at Slideshare was kind of entrusted to me. And, uh, and obviously, once the acquisition happened with LinkedIn, then, you know, our plans were kind of, you know, they had to dovetail into the LinkedIn overall roadmap. So I would say that, you know, that was a big transition moment for our teams and for me also in particular. So moving
0: on to DigiLocker, where is it now? How, how do you feel about the project? So
1: DigiLocker in 2023, we started in 2015. So it's been about almost seven and a half, eight years. And uh, the platform is used by, uh, you know, close to 200 million plus uh, citizens of India, Uh I mean, India being 1.4 billion, there's still a long way to go. Uh, but uh, I mean, the way I would describe, uh, you know, this this question, or the way I would answer this question is that, in my opinion, a project of this nature is going to take a fair bit of time to to know to actually, uh, you know, to not just get created, but for for real adoption, it's going to take some time. So. What we have now is version one of DigiLocker. It's up there. It's successful. It's running. It's used by a large number of people. Uh, now the government uh, has also realized uh, the real power behind the platform, and they're putting their complete weight behind it. They are pushing it. They are driving it in different directions. There's more and more uh, areas where where DigiLockers, uh, you know, kind of you know being uh, asked to deliver or it's being you know uh, relied upon. And uh, it's also, I mean, uh, as you might imagine, that uh, many of the uh, India Stack layers, they kind of you know, make most sense when you look at them in conjunction with one another, while they are standalone platforms. Uh, but the real power behind India Stack can be actualized once you have those layers working in conjunction. So there's the payment layer, there's the data layer, there's the... You know there's the authentication layers and so on and so forth so once you once you kind of look at all these layers in conjunction together that's when you you'll be able to realize the real power of what the stack can deliver and thereby uh, you know digilocker plays a very valuable role because it is used extensively in conjunction with the digital identity system Aadhaar. so think Aadhaar, digilocker upi and many of you know the digital products and services that are getting built by startups in India would be utilizing all of these platforms and all of these as part of their technology stack. I see
0: with India's stack, that sounds kind of specific to India, how how easily would it be to to export that into different markets?
1: Yeah, this is something this is a move that is already underway, honestly because, now that India has uh, successfully conceptualized, designed, architected, built, and scaled the stack, uh, I my understanding is that a lot of countries around the world, which has kind of, which have applauded the India and asked them that, you know, if there is a way that uh, they could benefit from the the experience of building this. And the Indian government rightly is kind of, you know, setting up the mechanisms for how this information, this knowledge, Uh, Sometimes this could be, you know, source code or this could be APIs or the design and the architecture of these APIs. Then there has to be a a real mechanism for sharing that. And uh, to to, to a specific question, I'd say that, you know, every country would need to kind of, you know, look at uh, where things are uh, and then build their own version of the stack, right? In India, uh, the stack started with the digital identity system. That was the base foundational layer. And then, you know, you had the data layer. That's where DigiLocker came in. And uh, and then you had the payments layer. And then you had the consent layer where a lot of the fintech applications are coming in. This was the path that India followed. It is possible that, you know, other countries might have a slightly different uh, setup and they might actually... They'll probably still need to start off with some kind of a foundational identity, digital identity system. But beyond that, you know, they could take a slightly different trajectory. Um, it, it's not necessary that they'll follow exactly the way it's gone about in India.
0: You spent a lot of time in the U.S. It seems like the U.S. and India are intrinsically linked, particularly with technology. How would you describe the the cultures, the environments between these two uh relatively speaking,
1: massive, massive countries. You know, uh, I think uh, there's tremendous uh, collaboration, partnerships that are happening uh, between the US and India, especially in the the IT and the technology space. Uh, There's a big uh, Indian community in the US, and especially in Silicon Valley. I mean, uh, so many of their top big tech uh, CEOs are people of Indian origin. And uh, now there's also... A growing trend of a lot of people who have actually gained very valuable experience in the U.S. are wanting to come back and work in India. So this, I would say, this constant back and forth. So There's people from India who are moving to the U.S. There's people from U.S. coming back to India. Most American uh, corporations would have some kind of, uh, you know, a development uh, setup in India. Many of them have what we call in India GDCs. These are global developmental centers. It's very common to hear of big, large organizations like Microsoft and Cisco and IBM's and you know Google, where uh, they'll have the the headquarters somewhere in the U.S. and their biggest office outside of you know their headquarters would be somewhere in India. You, you you can I'm sure if you Google you'll find many stories around around this. So all this kind of you know is contributing to a situation where there's constant back and forth, constant partnerships, flow of people. There's obvious money flows, capital flows as well. A lot of the venture capital money that comes into India comes as a U.S. origin. And uh, many Indian companies also, if they are looking at a global market, they choose to incorporate uh, somewhere in the U.S. So, uh, so there is very deep linkages both ways, especially when it comes to technology and uh, software and internet. Yeah. Thank you
0: for sharing your perspective on that. You're also very important, it would seem, in the Indian startup scene, both through your volunteer work with iSpert, uh, but then also you've set up communities and mentorship. Could you talk at all about the role that you play in the Indian startup scene, what that looks like
1: and why you do it? So my uh, you know, community involvement in the Indian startup scene actually goes back to almost 2003 or 2004. Uh, which is when I, uh, you know, entered this domain. Uh, I had a different career uh, prior to that, and uh, a lot of it was uh, kind of initially. I was just learning the tricks of the trade. I was just doing things, just trying to be uh, to learn for my own sake, and also maybe uh, you know uh, help others out uh, in in a shared mode because you know. Uh, the social web was all about, uh, you know, shared learning, you know, kind of shared experiential learning. So I think that was one of the things that really used to drive me and it motivated me. And uh, I think around that time, you know, we uh, we put together uh, a technology-oriented uh, community in India, which uh, went by the name Bar Camp. And Bar Camp used to organize these many mini- mini communities in various cities. And, you know, I happened to, Play a very early pivotal role in you know doing that in India, and a lot of my initial contacts and my networks in India uh, honestly uh, got built because of those initiatives and not because of SlideShare. Uh, so when SlideShare happened, it kind of uh, my involvement took a slightly different role, which was the 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 cause of product entrepreneurship out of India. Because India, if you, uh, I'm sure you'd be aware that uh, while India is a big as a big footprint in the technology space, uh, it's you know the, the area where it's made the most impact is IT services. It's in outsourcing, it's where in helping other clients do their, uh, you know, build their platforms and build their uh, technology systems. Uh, it has had, uh, you know, lesser success when it comes to products that are built out of India for the global markets. So what we were doing at SlideShare was actually it fell into the latter category. This was a global product, which was being built by founders of Indian origin uh, and uh, both in Delhi and in the Bay Area. So it was kind of, it had a mixed parentage. I I wouldn't say it was completely an Indian product. Honestly, that would not be the right way to portray it. But it was kind of, it had a mixed parentage. The founders were kind of, you know, Indian and American and the teams were both in both situations, but the product itself was global. So when I was building SlideShare, a lot of people in India used to actually look up to me for, you know, uh, how I could kind of, you know, help them. And my my association with uh, with Sharad's organization, like iSpirit, kind of essentially emanated from that experience. that they were also interested in uh, in the in the story of how SlideShare as a product was being built in a country like India. So it, over a period of time, it kind of you know gravitated towards. More of playing the 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 role of uh, you know of driving product entrepreneurship, and eventually, finally, it led to the government because you know while we were thinking products at that time, we were not thinking government products, but you know later on, uh, when uh, when I was when I exited SlideShare, uh, what what happened was that you know uh, we, we realized that you know uh, building government. Digital platform also falls within the ambit of you know of building products for your country. It may not have been the particular flavor of products that we started off thinking. You're not necessarily thinking about government products, honestly. But uh, once you kind of you know take a sweep around the horizon and say, "Yeah, why not?" I mean, you know, the country needs to uh, you know build these large digital systems to go to the next level, and some of the learnings around building these, these, these big platforms, they are, they are the same, whether you are building it for a startup, whether you are building it for a large company or a building for a government. So, uh, so, so finally, you know, that's where I, I landed is that think product, but inside the government systems. So it's kind of, uh, to your question, I would say my, my, you know, the role that I've played in the Indian startup community has kind of Evolved or morphed along that journey. Started off with, you know, more grassroots level, just being helpful to others. Moving on to something which was more product oriented, products built out of India for global markets, and finally, with the government standard, kind of took us again a little bit of a turn, wherein it kind of gravitated towards, you know, think products but inside government systems, and these have massive, you know, a national footprints. So if the government could actually successfully build. Uh, build a large platform, then its multiplier effect is like is is many fold. Uh, so that's the way I would describe, you know, the role uh, my role that is, the, you know, that I've played in the ecosystem, and now it's changed over the years.
0: A fifth of a century, twenty years, you've been in this space. That's incredible. And well, you mentioned, you know, India was known as an IT services uh, country for a, a, a while. And now it's moving into a, a product nation, I believe, as, as Sharma put it. Um, and what do you think needs to happen? Like, how is that transition? Is it is it moving faster than expected? Are there some hurdles to overcome? Could you talk at all about that transition into a product
1: nation? Correct. So I, I, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's the, it's a goal and the vision for India to emerge as a product nation. That is what. I spirit that organization that Sharad heads is uh, is kind of, you know, uh, that's the big role that they are trying to play and orchestrate in the country. And uh, you can can clearly see progress uh, and the winds of change are blowing, the way I would put it, is that uh, there's a very big, uh, you know, uh, ecosystem that's come about within the country as far as digital services, digital products go. A lot of products that are being used in India, built for India, meant for India, are being developed now in India and often by Indian entrepreneurs and Indian companies. I think on that front, uh, I would say the ecosystem is absolutely kicking and you know it, it has made tremendous progress. Uh, there is now a trend also of Indian companies building for the global markets. Is happening in in a few areas for example software as a service for for enterprise software for you know softwares that that are built for SMEs and you know mid-market companies and enterprises it's, it started to happen for 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 that part of the ecosystem it's probably still not happening on the consumer side so you're not having a lot of consumer startups or consumer products being built out of India for the global market and to my mind you know, that is the holy grail, that is the highest form of, you know, product innovation, because consumer products tend to kind of take a slightly different uh, DNA and a slightly different kind of a trajectory compared to enterprise class products. So hopefully we'll eventually kind of, you know, uh, move towards that as well.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I'd like to finish by talking about your role as an angel investor. You've been an angel investor in various early stage startups. And you're also an advisor to AngelList India. Could you talk at all about your role in angel investing? How did you get into it? And what has been your experience so
1: far? So uh, honestly, I've been a bit of a late starter to angel investing. Um, I did not uh, angel invest at all while I was running SlideShare or even post-acquisition. So my uh, the first time I did this was once I had uh, moved out of... LinkedIn and Slideshare, that was about 2014 or 15. And that's when I had the money and I had a bit of a time. I also had the experience and the expertise to kind of, you know, to leverage. Uh, So that was the time when I actually started uh, this journey. Although I also ended up working immediately for the government. And as as you might imagine, that uh, once you're part of the government uh, system, then, uh, you know, they might have. Questions or concerns around conflict of interest, so uh, I had to be cognizant of those 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 requirements, and you know, so any angel investments that I was making, it had to be uh, communicated and you know, told to the government uh, in an active disclosure uh, kind of a mechanism. And uh, and then so yeah, I would say uh, you know uh, I, I I'm still learning, uh, you know. Angel investing. I I wouldn't say that I. This is something where I have uh, gained a lot of expertise, uh, but you know it's great investing in other companies and living their journeys because honestly the the world around us is so diverse, and you know I have a few experiences. There's a few things that I've worked on, but if you look at the the vast expanse. Of the world around us that constitute what i know is probably not even 10 percent of you know the ecosystem what the ecosystem has to offer so and as a as somebody who is you know inherently curious you really want to learn you know from others you want to see what is happening in other parts of the ecosystem which are different from uh, where you are coming from so i think to me angel investing is of course it's an investment so you there's a there's a expectancy of a commercial interest or a commercial return out of it but In many cases, you know, you're not doing it only for the commercial return. You're also doing it because you see it as a means of uh, uh, helping others, learning from others. So I kind of, you know, divide my angel investments into three buckets, actually. Uh, The biggest bucket and the, the, the largest chunk of it is where, you know, you are doing it because you want a commercial economic return out of it. Uh, the second bucket is where you know you're doing it because you want to be helpful to others. There's there's many many a times where you know people who, you who've helped you in the past or people who have worked for you they are starting up and they come to you and you really want to be kind of helpful to others. So you're just trying to be a good Samaritan is the way I would put it. And the third bucket where uh you know I would do angel investing is where you're just learning. So imagine somebody like me with the kind of background the kind of experiences I've had but uh, maybe I wouldn't just have uh, much of an idea about emerging areas like drone technology or you know the latest uh, biotechnology uh, advances or what's happening in, in in space exploration but you know as a curious person that i am uh, you know i see angel investing as a way of interacting with founders who are building for that space and learning from their experiences so uh, so i i am personally not Uh, you know, uh, and as I said, you know, I don't consider myself an expert. I'm still learning the tricks of the trade. And uh, it is exciting. I'm sure it is. It it certainly sounds
0: exciting. Uh, Listening to you describe those three buckets, I was trying to guess which one is your favorite. And I I expect it goes between the uh, helping others and learning yourselves. But I'd like to hear from you. uh, How how would you rate your children from uh, return on investment versus uh, learning something new versus uh, helping others.
1: So I would say uh, as I said, I didn't start a long time back, so this is still work in progress. probably a little early to kind of comment on the overall portfolio. I do have some uh, good successes but uh, uh, as I said, I I'm also uh, I've been an operator myself, right So in that sense I do think the second and the third bucket are important to me. I think you uh, you know there's people who have helped me in my journey and I should kind of pay it forward and you know angel investing in some of those founders is one way of doing it and lastly as I said you know uh, just learning from others is that it's almost like in India we use this word called guru dakshina it's a word in Hindi guru dakshina means uh, that you pay something to your guru you pay something to your teacher because, you know, you are learning from the teacher and the payment could be in various forms. It need not only be in, in, in monetary forms. So the third bucket to my mind is something like Guru Dakshina is that because, you know, I'm at a certain stage of life, I don't, probably don't have the time. I don't have the energy or don't have the wherewithal to learn about new areas. So here, let me pay a little bit of this Guru Dakshina. And to me, that's a way of kind of, you know, learning about uh, completely new areas and, uh, so I wouldn't necessarily uh, measure that bucket purely on, you know, the economic returns that that bucket generates.
0: You're involved in many things. You're a man of broad interests and significant accomplishments, vast learning. What are you most excited about
1: looking forward? I think uh, you know one of the mega trends that you obviously see around is digitization, pretty much everywhere. I mean, as part of my SlideShare. Uh, journey i you know saw uh how the internet and digitization kind of slowly started pervading different walks of our lives and then you know when i happened to work in the government the same you know that same uh, trend started showing up inside the government where government systems government uh, mechanisms government uh, services kind of are undergoing uh, metamorphosis. They are being reimagined bottoms up. Something that was happening in the physical world uh, using systems and processes that was designed maybe, you know, 50 years ago is now being reimagined. So to me, the biggest trend that I see around is this, uh, is digitization. And, uh, you know, uh, it it is it is bringing about uh, you know a very meaningful impactful change in our lives and on the on the on the public side on the government side it is a way for governments to reinvent themselves as well especially in developing countries like india where you know there could be you know legacy systems there could be large leakages as a large uh, informal sector so the role that digitization plays is that it kind of gives you an opportunity to leapfrog some of the inherent uh, you know deficiencies in the system, so you kind of have a real chance at, you know, really galloping through uh, and just leapfrogging, you know, one or two phases in the in in between and just kind of jumping to something, which is uh, maybe a couple of orbits upwards. So so that is an exciting uh, you know transition to watch all around me, whether in the personal side or on the public side.
0: It really is. I liked hearing Sharad's story about the, the transition from the unbanked in India to now having cashless payments, uh, you know, smartphones, et cetera. It's amazing to watch from the outside, like you mentioned the leapfrogging. It's that now, uh, in some many cases, uh, you see people that were behind actually are now leaders. And um, it, it's really difficult to, to map when I speak to people in uh, emerging markets and they describe being so many years behind, say, the US, it it doesn't really equate because maybe last year, they were so many years behind. Next year, they will be so many years ahead. So it, it's, uh, it's a really fascinating um, uh, tra- transformation to witness.
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: Well, Amit, is there anywhere you'd like to direct people? Uh, where can we watch what you're doing or anything that you'd
1: like to highlight? I generally try to keep myself active on social media so i have a twitter handle and my linkedin profile i also have a blog although i'm not as regular with the blog itself so uh, you know those those destinations are good uh, places to follow what i'm doing
0: okay thank you i'll include those in the show notes well, thank you very much for talking to us today. It's been fascinating. Uh, a lot to digest, but I, I look forward to uh, to watching you grow and speaking to you again.
1: Thanks, David, for this opportunity. It was great interacting with you. Thank you for listening to the
0: Horizon Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon.